Hello everybody and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Welcome to 2022. My name is Scott Powell Woo. and as always I'm joined by my reader in arms across the pond, Joshua Taylor. Happy New Year, Mr. Taylor. Happy New Year, Mr. Powell. It's a very exciting time and I can only hope, buddy, that 2022 has got brighter days ahead than the previous two years. I know we're not out the woods yet with yeah. COVID, but you know, let's just get that out the way right now. We hope everybody's doing well and we wish yes. everybody the best for the new year. Yeah, 2020 and 2021 can, to use Edgar Allan Poe's abbreviation, F themselves. <laughs> F dash themselves. F dash themselves, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. In 20 dash. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And we're talking about Edgar Allan Poe here in jest because he's the focus of today's episode. We've decided, at long last really, that um, we're going to push our yes. Edgar Allan Poe episode on the stories of Dupin up to start 2022. Now this is one that Josh and I have kind of had on the back burner for quite a while. And yes. we've uh, we finally decided, at long last Josh, at high time I think, that we get to this one, huh? Yeah, let's see what this Edgar Award was worthy of being named after, you know? We might as well figure that out. <laughs> yeah. In, in introduction to this episode on Poe and his Depan stories, this show, Lighting the Pipes, it, it really did start as a project, didn't it? To do what many hundreds and thousands had done before, which was to read all of the Sherlock Holmes stories. But in, I, I suppose in choosing the task the way we did and constructing it into uh, a podcast, we, we're doing something maybe a little bit different, but... Certainly, our chronicling of the stories is not rare, but it mm -hmm. has evolved, Josh, over the last couple of years, and it's grown into something bigger, into the Chandler and now into more generic mystery thriller, first novel style things. And it's been, it's been great fun, but I think lighting the pipes will always be indebted to that initial project, won't it? Yes. And the DNA of Sherlock Holmes is, of course, Edgar Allan Poe's Dupin. Absolutely. And this, this is where we're, we're going back today. And, you know, I, I think we'd be so negligent if we didn't at some point turn our attention to these detective stories because we know and have known for <laughs> for a long time just how important they were, not just to Doyle, but to the genre. And we can assess, as we will, and we'll encourage our listeners to do the same, we can assess how effective the stories are by today's readership uh, and by today's standards. But few can disregard their, uh, their impact on writers of the early crime and um, detective milieu. No, yeah, you cannot dissuade anyone or me or any or you or anyone in particular that there is no Edgar Allan Poe in the, in the mystery novels that preceded him. It's yeah. it, the, the the DNA, the blueprint of all modern mystery fiction uh, comes from Edgar Allan Poe, and Arthur Conan Doyle will be the first to admit that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Josh, on that note, um, perhaps as a starting point, then. Um, we can look at a bit of what Conan Doyle said about Poe as an influence and as a writer. And I think that might be a nice way to start and step into these stories. Uh, once again, everyone, thanks for joining us here on Lighting the Pipes. Yes. It is our first episode of 2022, and we're really excited to bring to you today our rundown of the three Auguste Dupin stories as written by Poe in the 1840s. So yeah, sit back, relax, and uh, light the pipes with myself and Josh. Here we go. So here's something, Josh, that Conan Doyle said in acknowledging, like celebrating really, the work of Poe. Quote, Edgar Allan Poe, who in his carelessly prodigal fashion threw out the seeds from which so many of our present forms of literature have sprung, 
was the father of the detective tale and covered its limits so completely that I fail to see how his followers can find any fresh ground which they can confidently call their own. For the secret of the thinness and also the intensity of the detective story is that the writer is left with only one quality, that of intellectual acuteness, with which to endow his hero. Everything else is outside the picture and weakens the effect. The problem and the solution must form the theme, and the character writing must be subordinate. On this narrow path, the writer must walk, and he sees the footmarks of Poe always in front of him. He is happy if he ever finds the means of breaking away and striking out on some little sidetrack of his own. End quote. That seems very prototypical for the, the detective character in, in detective fiction, especially mm-hmm. just the notion of breaking out on their own on a different path and f- where others do not dare tread or just don't bother to tread. Mm-hmm. Because even though some of the people who work in these institutions um, are very good at what they do, in terms of solving yeah. cases, they don't go outside the box. Um, they yeah. they they stay within those fr- in, th- in that framework and the stories that we read particularly um, well all three of them in their own way they focus on coincidences and they, they don't believe in coincidence so they tie these things together as part of something when in fact they're just that coincidences that occur in nature and you must mm-hmm. in order to support to find the truth you must go to the truth and not try to use these coincidences that exist to create your narrative and which will lead you to the quote-unquote truth. You have to find mm-hmm. the real truth, and that can only be done yeah. through ratinization or whatever Poe says, <laughs> or, go into a more, yeah. or go into what Arthur Conan Doyle uh, attributes as the science of deduction. So the DNA of the detective, the mystery novel detective, is an, is an Edgar Allan Poe. And, you know, those words by Doyle really are quite impressive when you consider that Poe only wrote three stories. Like, that's it. Three curious little stories, which we're going to get to soon. And here, here's the Burgermeister of the genre saying, stop, look, listen, it's all down to this guy, you know? If you think of Edgar Allan Poe, I mean, Dupin is probably on the list of of people who are mystery novel aficionados. But when it comes to Edgar Mm -hmm. Allan Poe in a public sense, he is the father of the American Gothic horror. Yes, of course. You know, he's he's the predecessor to Lovecraft, for example. He's the predecessor Mm -hmm. to so many of these figures um, in American Gothic writing at the time, you know? And Gothic fiction itself mm-hmm. wasn't just big in America. It was big in, in Europe as oh, well. Yeah. I mean, look at the Bronte sisters. Look at the at the dark romanticism coming from Coleridge. Uh, all, and Radcliffe, you know, yeah. And Radcliffe, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what's his name? Matthew Lewis, who wrote The Monk. Uh, that's also in that same context. Sheridan so Le Fanu. The, Sheridan Le Fanu, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I suppose even the Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, which we actually are going to get into this year, just yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. with a little bit of a of a, of a uh, surprise uh, for our for our listeners, that yes, we will be doing mm-hmm. Wilkie Collins, the Moonstone. Maybe we'll even throw in a P.J. Wodehouse down the road. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, maybe a short story here or there. Absolutely. But you know, Josh, it wasn't a it wasn't a one off. This sort of gushing in a dinner in London, March nineteen oh nine, which was honoring the centenary of Poe's birth. Here's what Conan Doyle said to his audience. His tales, quote, his tales, Poe's tales, were on, were of the great landmarks and starting points in literature of the last 
century for French as well as English writers, for those tales have been so pregnant with suggestion, so stimulating to the minds of others, that it may be said of many of them that each is the root from which a whole literature has developed. His original and inventive brain was always trying daring experiments, always opening up pioneer tracks for other men to explore. It is the irony of fate that he should have died in poverty. For if yes. every man who wrote a story which was indirectly inspired by Poe were to pay a tithe towards a monument, it would be such that would dwarf the pyramids. Where was the detective story before Poe breathed life into it? Yeah, I can't I mean, think more, of a thing. More incredible. Yeah, self-effacing too. Self-effacing language from, from Doyle. I, was, I read a brief on his biography and they were talking about one of the influences of like Dupin was like this other fictional detective. No, I think he was a real person. He was like a detective uh, named Vitovac or something like that. And that was like in the 1820s. Uh, but I couldn't mm -hmm. find any more information on him at the time. It was a, kind of a last minute sort of perusal I did uh, just for the show today. And I wasn't able to find out more about that. But I think mm -hmm. in terms of fictional literature, you've nailed it. Uh, and Arthur Conan yeah. Doyle has nailed it. Cool. Is that he was yeah. the father of detective fiction. There is no doubt about it. Combine that with the gothic imagery that comes with detective fiction. I can honestly see Edgar Allan Poe sitting down watching the first season of True Detective or reading something like... Uh, the Black Echo? Or the, yeah, the Black Echo, or for example, Knots and Crosses. Uh, you know, I can kind of see the same imagery. Speaking yeah. of Scotland, by sure. the way, I don't know if you knew this, but Edgar Allan Poe, when he was very young, because his parents, both his parents were actors and they died when he was very young. And so he mm -hmm. and his siblings, the ones that survived anyways, they were adopted by this family, um, the, um, the Allens. And so they, the Allens went to England um, in, in the 1820s or so when he was very young and he lived he lived in North Ayrshire in Scotland for a little bit mm -hmm. he went to like grade school right. there yeah. yeah he did so, yeah yeah there's not a lot not a lot of footprinting left up there though um, no you can go for example to see like the place where he the cottage where he last lived you know in the Bronx and you can go to mm -hmm. Philadelphia where he apparently had like a, uh, a like a, a Philadelphia where he had a place and also, I believe for the University of Virginia, he had you can go see his like mm -hmm. dorm room, and they still keep the the, the, yeah. the, the uh, they still keep it preserved there. Apparently, spots of great pilgrimage, Josh. Spots of great pilgrimage, and mm -hmm. as Conan Doyle says, I mean, it was a very brief period of the era of Poe because he did not yeah, live a very, long time. Yeah. Like he, I think he Certainly died. He was less. He was under fifty. I think he was forty nine years old when mm -hmm. he died, mm -hmm. and uh, very oh, interesting figure. I saw a daguerreotype of him as a young man. He was quite handsome. But then you see a picture of him like yeah. towards the end of his life. He, you can see that's how he was destroyed by alcohol and stresses and all these other factors, mm -hmm. right? There's Tormented even a, figure for sure, yeah. There's even, fittingly, a mystery um, in surrounding his death as well. Because some people attribute it to alcoholism. Because he was found like wandering Baltimore, like totally drunk or something like that. And then he was brought to the hospital and then he died, right? And there's a mystery about about him that one of the theories is, is that he was a victim of cooping, which was basically mm -hmm. a, pl a political kidnapping where they basically forced people to vote for the other party by simply like making them by drinking themselves, drinking people to like abusive drinking, bullying, all this sort of stuff. So they'll eventually just succumb to the, mm -hmm. the party's whims and they would vote for them. So, yeah, a lot of thuggery like going on around there. 
Kind of reminiscent of Cary Grant's character in North by Northwest, how he's, uh, he, you know, he's <laughs> doused in and forced to drink all that brandy, you know, uh, before he leaves the yeah. hole. I'm sure that's well, still Josh, goes on nowadays, but anyways, yeah, I just thought that'd be an interesting point of, of his life and controversial yeah. life as well. I mean, we can get into detail on that if, you know, if we had more time, but I want to get into how he really influenced Sherlock Holmes in particular, and yeah, that's why sure. we're kind of presenting him in this case, but I thought maybe some people would like to know a couple of facts about him, so. Yeah, for sure. And this Josh Buddy from his literary memoir, the the last little Conan Doyle blurb I'm going to share with uh, everybody today. So this from Through the Magic Door. To him, Poe, must be ascribed the enormous progeny of writers on the detection of crime, of whom I have been a small part. Each may find some little development of his own, but his main art must trace back to those admirable stories of Monsieur Dupin, so wonderful in their masterful force, their reticence, their quick dramatic point. After all, mental acuteness is the one quality that can be ascribed to the ideal detective, and when that has once been admirably done, succeeding writers must necessarily be content for all time to follow in the main track. So quite a lot of uh, quite a, a lot of analogy, metaphor there about the track and path and footsteps, and it is very, very clear to those audience members who listen to mm-hmm. him speak, or those like us who are reading his works posthumously, that Conan Doyle was not just a fan of Poe's work, but feel, felt greatly indebted to what he offered the genre. And I think because Conan Doyle also separated himself as a writer from the crime genre, he did other things, I think that that enabled him to kind of uh, say, look, look, go look at these other guys too, you know, go look at this guy a little bit. But it's, it's kind of refreshing, you know, that such a big figure like that would be, as, as I said before, self-effacing and quite humble in his uh, assessment of, I guess, his own place within the bigger picture of crime fiction. Yeah, I could definitely see kind of a kindred spirit between Poe and Arthur Conan Doyle, not only for the detective fiction element, but because, you know, both of them were very interested in mysticism in, the, in, in its own way and mm-hmm. interested into the macabre. And uh, they both experimented with that, you know, in many senses. Like, I can imagine yeah. if Poe were alive and he read The Hound of the Baskervilles, he would have loved it. Mm. Oh, dude, you got that yeah. right. And, you know, you don't really have to look far. And this is where we're going next, of course, everyone. You don't have to look far in the home story. Uh, this Holmes canon to find influences drawn from these Dupin stories that we're about to discuss. Some of them are subtle. Some of them are subtle, seen in a story or plot feature, but others, Josh, are more direct mentions of Poe. And, you know... Almost, uh, in in a way, like kind of tributary plagiarism, (laughs) in a way, if you look, for example, the Purloin letter. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we know that Poe hated plagiarism. He was very, very severely against it. Um, but in the very first Holmes story, A Study in Scarlet, Watson says to Holmes, quote, You remind me of Edgar Allan Poe's Dupin. I had no idea such individuals did exist outside of stories. End quote. And Sherlock Murder's says. in the room. And Sherlock <laughs> says, yeah, f- <laughs> yeah, I think he like basically rips Dupin a new one or something. He says he was like he he does kind of yeah. He, he talks about how uh, he talks about that that moment in Murders in the Rue Morgue where um, Dupin just sort of like starts this abrupt conversation by uh, exhibiting all the thoughts that the guy had before, and he goes like you you pr-. yeah 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 he does. But anyway, um, we'll we'll get into that when we do a review. But Josh. In Murders in the Rue Morgue, the first of the three stories we're going to look at today, um, the, the, you know, we, we've essentially got a locked room mystery featuring a primate assailant, right? Now, both both <laughs> Prime Hysteria sus- Lodge a primate and a creeping... Suspect. A primate suspect. 
Both Wisteria Lodge and the Creeping Man feature similar behaviors, and it's not, I don't think, a stretch to say that the Speckled Band and maybe even the Lion's Mane dabble in the same sort of naturalist horror. Yeah, you know? a little bit. Yep. Then you've got Marie Roger, uh, which provided the naval blueprint for, I think, the cardboard box, one of Doyle's most divisive and controversial stories. And then the political intrigue surrounding the stolen document within the purloined letter, the third story we're going to chat about today, finds a literary descendant in the Naval Treaty, the Priory School, the Three Gables, the Second Stain. I even feel in this story that you get slight breezes of the Mazarin Stone, um, mm. you know, flapping in the curtains of the minister's stately room. Like, I, I see, I see Poe everywhere now that I've looked to see Poe everywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah, his raven is in the corner there somewhere where <laughs> where uh, Sherlock yes. Holmes probably just like quietly acknowledges as he enters the room, you know, <laughs> begrudgingly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with furrowed brow. Nevermore. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, why don't we go down and, and start talking about the first of these stories, Murders in the Rue Morgue. Now, Listeners, what Josh and I have decided to do this time around is to treat this episode much more like we did our uh, Sherlock Holmes episodes where we were doing the short stories. So if you enjoyed those and if you've heard those, you'll know that we provide little plot summaries as we go and we're going to tidy up discussion on each of the stories in a single episode. So yes. we're going to start with Murders in the Rue Morgue and I've written a little bit on this, buddy, to take uh, yourself, myself and the listeners through the story. Published in 1841 for show in Graham's Magazine, which was a Philadelphia-based periodical, of which Poe was the editor, the story opens with prolix commentary on observation and the philosophy of reasoning, both of which are foreshadowed as being important here. The unnamed narrator then describes meeting C. Auguste Dupin in a library in Paris. The two bachelors hit it off, and the narrator, naturally, goes to live with Dupin in his ramshackle mansion. Now, I, I realize that that's sort of an oxymoron, Josh, ramshackle mansion, but <laughs> it, it really is, for me, the best way to describe their home. <laughs> anyway. It's, it's kind of like uh, George Bailey's house, you know, you know how, like, in It's a Wonderful Life, where <laughs> they, they have, there's that house, that yeah. old house on yeah. the block, and they make it their they home keep or whatever. rocks through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a bit like that, yeah. Anyway. Unbridled freedom enables both young men to follow Dupin's odd lifestyle of blocking out the daylight, staying up late to read each other's thoughts, and to read and discuss philosophy. I guess that's like the 19th century equivalent of Netflix or gaming or something. <laughs> well, it's not long before Dupin showcases his talents for us through the narrator's mouthpiece, of course, and Poe's vision of ratiocination is fully brought to life. Dupin embarks on a tautological brag of how he knew exactly what his friend was thinking by referencing clues and signs from earlier conversations and events in the evening. All of this is to set up the great deduction that awaits. A confusing and horrific double murder in a part of Paris known as the Rue Morgue has taken the lives of Madame L'Espagne and her daughter. Mom was seemingly launched from a bedroom window and was found a broken, bloodied mess with her throat cut in the backyard. So badly injured was she, in fact, that her head lolloped off when the body was moved. Daughter, meanwhile, was strangled and stuffed awkwardly, as if there's an unawkward way to do it, up the chimney. The room was located on the fourth floor of the home and was locked from the inside, making this a true, perhaps the first, locked room mystery. A bloody straight razor was found on the floor, along with clumps of greyish hair and two purse bags of coins. 
The money, as it turns out, is just a complete red herring dropped in there by Poe to obscure our sense, along with the mixed testimonies of different witnesses. What testimonies, I hear you ask? Well, after the narrator shares the details of the murder, we then read a set of detailed witness statements, published in the paper no less, from a collection of figures, a laundress, tobacconist, bank manager, silversmith, Dutch visitor, restauranter, bank clerk, and tailor all report variations on a similar theme. Screaming, a man's or woman's French accent, but also an undefinable foreign tongue grumbling and murmuring for good measure. Without any evidence, just knowing that he had gone there before the murders to deliver some money from the bank, the young clerk, Adolphe Le Bon, a Durand Durand fan, maybe? Durand Durand fan? What do you think, Josh? Yeah? Adolf Le Bon. Well, anyway, I, I think Hungry Like not. the Wolf, maybe Hungry Like the <laughs> O-Dash might be a better name for the song in this case. <laughs> uh, right. I, I did set you up for that. Anyway, yeah. um, was arrested by Paris authorities. So we've got a bank clerk that's in, that's in prison, even though they don't really have any hard evidence on him. Well, wouldn't you know, Dupin remembers this Le Bon and a kind turn that he paid him once, so he involves himself in the case. How, when, where, why he gained the trust from the police just to visit crime scenes, we're not really given that information, but Poe puts him there nonetheless, okay? Yes. Because plot, I guess, right? Because plot. Yeah. So Dupin and the narrator examine the crime scene the next day and they rule robbery out as a motive, judging from the money that was left. Dupin also points out that whoever performed this reverse Santa Claus on Miss Lespanay must have been exceptionally strong. Uh, Not motivated by money. Stronger than your average man. Oh wait, I know. It's a f***ing orangutan. That's who's done it. (laughs) That's who's done it. Well, hell, why not, eh? That would explain how the murderer got into the locked room, right? After climbing the lightning rod and into the Mm -hmm. window. And that could also account for the Olympian shot put through the window that saw Madame Lespanay hurled out into the night sky and into the garden. Precipitated, one might say. Precipitated? Defenestrated. Defenestrated, yes. Mm -hmm. Additionally, it could explain the hair and the enormous hand marks around the daughter's neck. So henceforth, Josh... This orangutan, suspect number one, will be referred to as Clyde. I'm sure that meets with your approval. Yeah. Any? Yeah. Fair enough. Well, that was the that that was the name of uh, Clint Eastwood's orangutan in. Oh, oh any the, way which way but loose. <laughs> any which way but loose. Yeah, I've yeah. decided to call him Clyde. Okay, so Dupin then employs a trick that Sherlock Holmes would do later numerous times. He uses the media to draw out suspects. By planting an ad in the paper, asking if anyone would like to come and reclaim their lost orangutan, um, he manages to find a recipient, or he manages to get a return. A sailor soon pops by, looking for his primate pal, and we get the rest of the story, the bits that even Dupin himself could hardly be blamed for not imagining. The stranger remonstrates, somewhat needlessly, I guess, seeing as Dupin isn't really accusatory, he's just interested in getting the details. Anyway, the the strange... er, The sailor remonstrates that after picking up the orangutan in Borneo, as you do, and returning to Paris with the animal, as you do, he started losing the ability to control it, as you might expect. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Big city, bright lights, delusions of grandeur. It's not a wonder the orangutan lost his head. No one's immune, dear listener. Not even them. Anyway, moreover, this particular beast was getting pretty slick with his master's razor after observing him shave a few times, that when he was caught in the act of practicing, 
Clyde jumped ship and bolted off like a shamefaced teenager. <laughs> upon reaching the room morgue, Clyde hops up into the lightning rod and into the Lespanyai's parlor, where he proceeds in anxious fury to conduct a full Sweeney Todd on the two unsuspecting ladies. It's pretty horrendous stuff. Thinking yeah. himself a barber, but jacked up on jungle endorphins and driven by enormous primitive strength, Clyde commits the crimes. Afraid of punishment, he tries to rid the scene of his badness, one, by stuffing the daughter up the funnel, and two, by launching the other woman out the window. Then Clyde flees again. By all accounts, the whole event is marked by fearful speed and the sort of random horror that is remarkably more a part of humanity's existence with animals than many would like to admit. Well, that's essentially it. Dupin saves Le Bon from a life of incarceration. The sailor sells Clyde off to some owners who will hopefully be less demonstrative with their toiletries. And we are left realizing that orangutans, like puppies, are not just for Christmas. <laughs> well done. And there we go. Yeah. That was nice Sorry to get back the- into the smooth uh, routine of those. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It gives me uh, some warm nostalgia from the early days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there you go, everyone. That's uh, kind of the strokes of murders in the room morgue. I don't think I missed anything, Josh, did I? No, I think you got the basics of it. I'm really wondering what the response was when this story was published. Like, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. this must have been really blew people's minds, in my opinion. Like, just the idea of it. I know like, a lot yeah, of people... blows my mind, yeah. I know there's always been through, like, you know, the history of literature in Europe, in, uh, in Western civilization, stories that, like, Orinoco or... Or, or something along those lines that indicate, you know, the savagery of yeah, non-Christians yeah. And, mm-hmm. and non-Gentiles and all this sort of stuff. But it, it seems that uh, this story, I think in particular, like, I did not see this end coming, did you? Like, No, I didn't. I didn't. But I agree with what you're saying. Uh, you, you cite the Afro-Ben story, Orinoco. And while that might seem a little out of place, it really isn't. Because there is this, there is this strange colonial otherness to this story you know which which touches on similar things that we had in the mm-hmm. sign of four with uh, the return of um who's our friend who fell in the thames comes from the andaman island what's his oh, name tonga or something tonga, or that's right yeah tonga? Like, there yeah. is an otherness to the story that's meant to shock and that's meant to sort of experiment with people's impressions of cultures and understandings of you know other parts of the world and whatnot i was just going to say and as you can probably see from the webcam there that i'm very animated right now it's very interesting that, like, years later, we have humans, you know, someone from, for example, the Andaman Islands, like Tonga, and even before then, the portrayal of humans who are not, let's just say, white, uh, being portrayed in these animalistic mm-hmm. fashion. But yeah. Poe, he even comments the fact that, like, all of the people said they heard the, a foreign voice. To me, That's he's right. almost highlighting yeah. the xenophobia of the of people uh-huh. who live in cities yeah. and of different nation Definitely. states and and whatnot, and then he actually has the crime, the most brutal crime that someone would mm-hmm. in this day attribute to like a savage. You know, like this is the history of of writing in Western civilization mm-hmm. is that usually the dark skinned people, the brown people, would be the ones who would do these mm-hmm. heinous acts, right? Like these are the same people mm-hmm. who you know who, uh, for example, the fear of Islam or the fear of. Uh, slave revolts and so on and so forth, they would dehumanize what they saw as the lesser races. But in this sense Mm -hmm. here, Poe isn't saying some savage non-white person did this crime. He's saying an animal did this crime. An animal Mm -hmm. that has very similar connotations to a general human being. 
And what I think he's trying to say in some way, maybe I'm wrong and you disagree with me, is that he's criticizing this racist element in fiction writing that portrays uh, people of non-white descent, I guess you could say, in committing these crimes. In a way, he's criticizing it, saying like, no, you're saying that some savage animal did this crime, and that's what you're reducing those people to. And so Poe is kind of highlighting this in his own way. And I know that he was a controversial figure. I know that he disliked allegory. I know that he, um, I, you know, he had made a lot of enemies. So I can kind of see him writing this as sort of some sort of, uh, some sort of treatise in some way, in, in my opinion. What do you think about that? No, I, I think that's a good read. And I, I don't think that you're being too, I don't think you're, you're reaching too far to try to give credit to the writer as we can sometimes romanticize intent and stuff like that. Yes. Uh, I, and I don't think you are because he could have lent, he could have lent, leaned, what's the word, leaned or lent? He could have leaned further into these stereotypes if he wanted to. He could have produced a story that still would have sold for its day and yet yes. also Probably shocked, more. you know? Yeah, but I think you're. I think you are saying something here, and we we have to keep in mind that this is the writer who would who would write and give us, you know, quite brutal stories of of humans destroying other humans, you know, and even themselves. So I, I think you're right. I think he's trying to say something about um, potentially the evil that is born into us as animal species, you know, and then by using an orangutan as the you know, as the perpetrator, if you will, then he's kind of pulling the rug from under us, but at the same time delivering a message that, you know, this animal is part of all of us, regardless of where we come from, regardless of who we worship, regardless of our skin color, our ethnicity, our tastes, you know, we are all primates, we're all capable of, you know, enormous mm-hmm. ugliness, you know, and and random acts of violence and, and you know... You, don't trust anybody kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but even the definitely don't trust yeah. orangutans. Don't, oh, definitely don't trust them. Although it's funny, you know, I read a book by uh, Gordon Grice, who is a naturalist and a, a scientist. He wrote a wonderful book, um, The Book of Deadly Animals. And it's it's just a little something about orangutan behavior here I'm, I'm going to read for you. Uh, it's really not long. I'm just uh, quoting from my book here. Orangutans, kept as pets or performers, have a reputation for a peculiar form of play in which they bite the fingers of humans, sometimes to the point of amputating them. Why this should seem amusing to them is yet another quandary of interspecies relations. In zoos, orangutans, like many primates, have found disturbing ways to relate to their captors. A zoo volunteer of my acquaintance says a certain male orangutan used to greet her every day by sexually assaulting a boulder in his cage. Improbable as it seems, wild orangs have also evinced <laughs> have also evinced sexual interest in human females, even descending from the canopy to seize them. But apparently, such contact has not seriously hurt anyone, nor proceeded to the lurid conclusion that pulp fiction might suggest. Orangutans come from Indonesia and Malaysia. They are generally a bit larger than chimpanzees, and, gen- and certainly have the power to hurt people, but they rarely do. An orangutan escaped its cage in Rochester, New York in 2003, seized a volunteer and carried him around for a while before releasing him without serious violence. In Gulf Breeze, Florida in 2000, a female orangutan escaped and battered a keeper, biting her repeatedly, sometimes bone deep on the leg. But both of these escapees returned to their cages voluntarily. And you know, this is just one small blurb from one book. Again, that's from Gordon Grice's uh, Book of Deadly Animals. But it it, it does, I think, service the point that orangutans are actually among the primates 
far more peace-loving and gentle than others. So I also read in this story and in the characterization of this murderous orangutan, uh, a just developing scientific awareness of the animal's behavior. And I, I see that as a really interesting colonial feature to the story as well. Mm -hmm. Perhaps colonial is not, not quite the right word, but, you know, in terms of exploring and bringing things back and, and all of that, you know, this is yeah, still the age of time. The age of exploration. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like in the 19th century, Livingston, Stanley, yeah. that sort of stuff. Richard, Sir Richard Burton. Totally, yeah. Uh, not the actor, <laughs> but the explorer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe Richard Burton had orangutans too, you know, I mean, why I not? wouldn't be surprised. I don't think he did. It's funny, on his yacht, he had a panther once, I think, that belonged to someone. Uh, I remember reading his letters and that somebody brought him a panther. Who was it that brought him that panther? Oh, that's bothering me now. Anyway, he had to look after Most this fucking lion. Most likely it could have been one of his panther. drinking buddies. Maybe it was uh, Oliver Reed or Peter O'Toole, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, it, Richard it was Harris. like that. Could have been. It, it might have been Richard. It might have been, been Dickie Harris, yeah. Anyway, yeah, we're getting off the track, but... Shall we light the pipes, Josh, and talk about the room morgue and, and just kind of work our way through? All right, good. Let's go through it. Principles, investigation, perpetrator, environs, and secondary characters. Now, this is going to be interesting for each of these stories. But Yeah, uh, the gradients and the criteria should prove intriguing based on our previous <laughs> pipes that we've lit and marked and yeah. scored and whatnot. <laughs> Well, why don't you start off, buddy? Talk to me about how you felt uh, the principles were in this story, specifically Dupin, because he is our this is our first appearance of him, and it is he's, he's our only principle, really, that we've got at work here. I think in the case of Dupin, you have to kind of put aside what you know of Sherlock Holmes and the characters that followed Dupin. So you got to kind of consider him on his own when he was created at the time and how original it was for his character. I gave his character overall as a principal a three, in my opinion, because mm -hmm. I think he's just sort of like the, uh, if you look at, like, I suppose, you know, Darwinian evolution, he is the single cell life form in the primordial ooze of uh, detective fiction. And he's slowly evolving into an amphib a fish, amphibious creature. And he's on the beach now. <laughs> and he's climbing legs. towards it. <laughs> but he's not the dinosaur that Sherlock would become, right? Uh, mm -hmm. yes. So... <laughs> I would say this amphibious creature, Dupin, uh, I didn't get much of a personality from him, to be honest. Like, mm -hmm. the way that the narrator is kind of Poe and the friend at the same time is he's describing someone, but for the sake of simply telling the tale that he's telling. So you don't get a lot of yeah. character traits from him. You know that he's, he's, in the, he's, wealthy. he's not exactly wealthy, but... He has some money left over from like his father and he gets by on that and he has his house outside, he has his house in Montmartre and he's, you mm -hmm. know, his living, they're reading their books and stuff and the prefect of the police department comes in all the time and asks him for advice, especially in this case here with the Rue Morgue and basically he's given the evidence and he considers everything that's done by the police department and all those involved and the witnesses statements and the newspapers comments and then he puts them all together and then follows one idea like Sherlock Holmes does, and then that's how he's able to come to the conclusion of the case uh, based on that. But it's more of a breakdown of the, of the cause and effect and I guess just like the logical tautology, as you said, of how an investigation comes to an end and how all those, those conclusions are inferred from the evidence. So 
again, I don't. I, I get the idea of the method, the modus operandi of Dupin as a character, but I don't really know him as a person. I don't feel I know him like Sherlock Holmes. It's like, yeah, there's similarities between Sherlock Holmes, the whole uh, human calculator automaton aspect of him, but we also know that Sherlock Holmes has foibles and weaknesses and eccentricities, and I don't get feelings of that from him. But as an original character... Just on the basis of what the character will evolve into down the road, and I think just what I think mm-hmm. Poe was kind of using Dupin not so much as a character, but just almost sort of like a uh, a literary device for telling its mm-hmm. story and going through this idea of ratiocination. I just think you know there's very little to go with here, so, but at the same time, yeah. original character at the time it was created. So I'm going to go with the three. Okay, well I went for a three point five, and for me I think that's a bit generous traditionally. Uh, I would say. I, I do think that. Yeah, I do think so. But first of all, I want to just agree wholeheartedly with, with what you're saying. I also think that Poe is using this character as a device to tell the story. I don't think he's terribly interested in making Dupin a figure with, you know, eccentricities and with uh, um, <clears throat> foibles, you know, to borrow your own term. At least not I think it's yet. just, right. Not yet. Yeah, let, let's just get the characters out there to do the job. But one thing I did like about him um, was how oddball he was described at the beginning. Like, th- this is a really strange meeting, you know. I think Doyle improves upon this when Holmes and Watson meet at St. Bartholomew's in the, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, study in Scarlet. Because here they just sort of meet at the library, kind of like you're, you know, like a, uh, I don't know, almost like a romantic comedy. You know, you get two characters coming together, meeting in a location, and then, yeah, let's just go live together. And then mm-hmm. the oddball things that they do. Like, I do feel as though those are some elements that help to characterize him a little bit. But no, you're you're right. We don't get any sort of haughtiness or any sort... Like, he does make comments about the police, but they're never really that dismissive. Like, it, it, it does feel to me like he's just kind of a, a level character, uh, a mouthpiece for you know, a vehicle for telling the story. So I would agree with you, but I'm going that extra half mark, which it it's pretty, it's, it's pretty generous by my standards. It really is. But I enjoyed him in this story. So I thought, I thought the little bit of environmental play that he had at the beginning where we see him in his house, reading the books in the dark and then getting out and walking the streets. I thought there was affectation enough in that to give me a little half mark extra, but I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm not, I would never go beyond that because I don't think he's a fully <laughs> developed character by any stretch of the imagination, but perhaps because we've just come out the Christmas season, this, you know, I'm feeling a bit generous. I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting that we talked about uh, Dupin and the narrator, uh, his friend, who may or not be Poe, but whatever. Uh, I was reading a book a couple of years ago, and it reminded me of this. It's a Team of Rivals, which is a biography of Abraham Lincoln. And one of the things it talked about was how, mm. especially when, when Lincoln was a young man, and how many young men at that time, like in the 1820s and 30s and whatnot, there was very common for two men to live together, even share the same bed. And there wasn't any kind of homosexual notion to it. And in mm-hmm. fact, it was very well-known um, sort of phenomena where men would almost love their best friends more than their wives. And there mm-hmm. was like this bond that they developed, like in, I guess when they leave the family construct of the patriarchal father and they go to school and they meet a friend and then they, yeah. they go to school with that friend and then they go into business with that friend and... They share a bed mm-hmm. together, you know, just as, as before, you know, they would go and meet their sweetheart and then get married. This element of men living together was very popular at the time. And it was not looked at mm-hmm. as a pawn as sort of like a 
suggestive homosexual situation. Although there are have been rumors, you know, even with Lincoln, that there might have been some possibility of that. But you never know because all the records have been puritanized over the years, so you don't really know yeah, the truth sure. of it. But this was a common this was a commonality, and uh, I, I just mm-hmm. wanted to point that out. And I, that it reminded me of that when I was uh, when I, when, I, when I was reading uh, in the room org. Nice one. Okay, well, let's go on to the investigation then. I I went for a three with this. Again, I found the details of the case quite interesting and quite compelling. And I did like structurally how Poe sets up, even if it's a little unbelievable, all of the witness statements that are being read from the newspaper, you know? Yeah, well, the newspaper reading is a theme in the Dupin stories. (laughs) Yeah, it totally is. And I kind of thought here, though, it worked nicely because you as a reader are trying to piece together, oh, which one of these did it or who was trying to figure out who did it? You know, like, I bet it was this guy because he thought he heard a Spaniard. And I think from a reader's point of view, particularly in the 19th century, you're probably bringing all of your biases to that uh, to that reading as well of like, oh, who do you like? Who are you afraid of? Yeah, you know, are you, you afraid oh, of the Spaniard, oh, the, Italian, the Frenchman? Italian, the Spaniard. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. And that's another reason why I think the story works quite neatly to show how cosmopolitan Paris was at the time, you know, the idea of empire. It's a really interesting tale from that point of view. But it, it is also just bonkers, you know? It, it's it's kind of bonkers, the way it all transpires, the, the gruesomeness of it. Like, um, it smacks you with a bit of shock. It smacked me with a bit of shock. And but I was kind of left thinking... The people back then? Because this is 1830s, mm. 40s Paris. Mm. So this is the time, I think, when the Bourbons were put back on the throne after the fall of Napoleon and all that. That's when the Bourbons came back after the July Revolution that occurred. So the Bourbon, the kings are back in power, so to speak, at least for a little while. So you have that happening. And you have also the memory of the terror. Like they mentioned Montmartre. Montmartre, for example, mm-hmm. that's the place where the guillotine was lined up and people, or like Sacre-Cœur, like that's where, that's where people yeah. were lined up in guillotine. And that's when the, the, the terror of the Jacobins reigned, right? So that violent history, just even the past 30 years, I think kind of carries into the energy of the story and how the Parisians reacted to it, right? And this horrible murder that occurred and they're hearing all these atrocities. And I just think there's some connection to the to the primal violence that occurred in Paris mm-hmm. less than three decades ago to the primal violence that we see in this story, right? In this chamber, in this fourth floor yeah, of, this, yeah. of this apartment building. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm just kind of I'm driving at coincidences, and Japan would look down upon me perhaps for that. But to me, I just think in the writing, I think Poe must have had some of this on his mind a little bit. I'm only speculating, yeah. though. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're right. He was a very well-read guy, wasn't he? He would. I mean, and 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 even if you weren't, you're not living in the 19th century without knowing a thing or two about uh, about the French Revolution, right? Yeah, because if you read about some of the stuff that went on, just like not just the guillotine, but like the murder of aristocrats, uh, not just like on the on the scaffolding, but like in their homes and their houses, or what happened to, for example, mm-hmm. the best friend of uh, the, of Marie Antoinette, what happened to her when uh, the, when she met her fate. If you read about it, it's absolutely terrible what happened to her. And so the violent, the primal violence that existed at that time. Here we have a story where these we, these two women were butchered in their household by a by a primate. Would that have shocked people as much back then? I don't know. Mm. It's 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 hard to say because it would have probably reminded some people if whoever if you were Parisian and you're reading, uh, for example, or a friend or just being French reading about the root murders in the room morgue. Would they have been shocked as much by the violence, or would that have almost 
kind of trigger them in a way, you know, like I'm just curious about mm. the psychological uh, impact of the story in terms of not just lit- uh, to the average reader, but also to like the Parisian, to the French reader as well. And what other stories might, uh, not what stories, sorry, and what, what else might have been conjured to them from their own fears and anxieties about Paris, you know, and and the French culture. So it's it's an interesting yeah. point you make. And what what's Poe is Poe doing something allegorical there as well? I mean, we can also despite throw him that not liking allegory. The ether. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like you know. Well, I mean, yeah. Hemingway used to say stuff like that too. Uh, you know, about symbolism. That symbolism symbols in stories that are just put in there are like raisins and raisin bread. You know, raisins are mm. great, but plain bread is better that type of shit but i never bought any of that like he knows damn well a writer knows when they're being symbolic and if you do something well enough it'll mean different things to different people but maybe the atrocity of this crime is meant to speak somehow to um the fears still going on the the, the blood still you know that the, the haunt the haunting of paris the paris is still yeah characteristically haunted you know yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And it connects Paris, of course, to France, which was one of America's big supporters during the War of Independence. And then, yeah, you know, we have America, basically a nation founded on blood as well. And then mm-hmm. right now in the 1830s, 40s, we're going through a very sort of breakdown of the initial American structure because we're gravitating towards civil war already at this point. So it's just, and, and we have Poe, you know, living in the area right in the main, like right almost toward, close to the mix. And de- I mean, he lived in Baltimore, he lived in Philadelphia. Uh, he lived very much like much souther than New York most of the time. So he was in an area where historically these sort of sentiments would be brought up. So maybe he could also feel almost a change in the wind as well. So I just yeah. think it is as a historical um, way, the story has grounds as well. Mm-hmm. It's very okay, so what did you go for? Yeah. I went for a three. I think investigation was beautifully laid out. It was an original story, uh, visual investigation. I think the cat, like how it was written and how it was resolved and everything. Like, yeah, the ending was a bit pat, but overall, like I, this, I get, this is one of the high marks I gave the story. And just as a spoiler, to me, this is the highest I gave um, the investigation for a post story that we read of the three we read. I gave this a four. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's keep moseying along. Let's talk about yeah. Clyde. Uh, let's talk about Clyde. <laughs> Clyde, the perpetrator. Not much to say about Clyde that we already talked about. Uh, yeah, I, I we, did the very ori- <laughs> we did already. Yeah. On just on sheer originality, I give Clyde yeah. a four. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. I went for a three on sheer originality. Um, I, I did like the way he was characterized. Like you know, the, the idea of stuffing. I don't know what Poe was reading, if he knew anything that was released about animal behavior at the time, or if he was just thinking that this orangutan would act the same way that a human might, a young human with a childish Could mind, have been deliberate. Hide, hide evidence of its of its bad doing. Um, but yeah. that idea of like stuffing stuffing up the, the funnel there. Mademoiselle. Yeah, yeah um, Mademoiselle. The, I don't know. That's, that's some pretty grisly stuff. And the strength. You know, to defenestrate and to throw the madame out and away. It's it's a hell of a it's a hell of a perpetrator, and I'm, yeah. I hope that I hope Clyde's okay. You know, but is 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 the sailor not responsible? I mean, let's raise that question: Is the sailor not a perpetrator here? Someone taking advantage of a wild beast and trying to domesticate it, and then yeah, it's you know, not I mean, a pity, right? It's not a pit bull. No, it's like to me, tank, but it's almost the same situation. But somebody should fucking pay for this. Like, why shouldn't the owner have some recompense for these lives? Like, shouldn't there be some responsibility laid at his feet? 
in the modern day, there'd be a civil suit against him, probably. I don't know if you could charge him for anything. Maybe manslaughter, second-degree manslaughter or something like that. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Culpable homicide over here. Culpable homicide, yeah. I don't know, man. Like, I just feel like he's the guy that gets all... Like, all the horror and the shock is directed at Clyde, but this sailor acknowledging that he didn't really have control of his pet. Like, why did he fucking do it in the first place? And what's Poe saying about humans in, in, in that sort of gesture? Like, yeah, this wild animal, you're going to become part of my life. I'm going to make you part of uh, yeah. the Reckless human world. I'm going to bring... Yeah, like, it's it's interesting. Uh, anyway, I wish you were three. In, you went for in, a In four. his own way. Yeah, I found the perpetrator original. Um, yeah, you it know, was like, original, I think man. It was. It, it, it was original. And I, I thought how it was revealed was very well done. So it connects to the writing a little bit and how the perpetrator was. But I gave it a four. I think it was just original. And it kind of, I just enjoyed it in that kind of sense. So, you know, I'm glad it wasn't the butler okay, cool. that did it, you know? Yeah, well, I went for a four with my environment here. I really liked the environments here. I thought they were drawn up well. I liked the, the mansion. I liked the crime scene. Um, obviously, there's nothing else. To be honest, there's a couple of references to the Starry Night when they're walking out in Paris, but I don't feel like Paris is really brought to life through the Dupin narrator moments. I feel like Paris is brought to life through these small, isolated locations. But I, I liked it. I, I, I felt it was atmospheric. So I went for a four. What did you do? I gave a three and a half just for the reasons that you said, cool. but probably with a little less enthusiasm for it, just because yeah. I like when environs are described by the author, like when they put mm-hmm. you in the place of you being there. I was simply told they were there. You know, I, I did like how he recreated, I gave him a half a point more, like how he recreated the room so I could visualize it and I could visualize mm-hmm. the, how the window was, was accessed through the broken nail and the force and, and just, and the detail and also the kind of, also the subtlety, despite having gore, how he matter-of-factly describes the crime scene. He doesn't like show us, for example, the crime right away when it happens, or he doesn't show us mm-hmm. the gruesome details as it's being committed. We get the aftermath of the crime and then he lets our mind put together and visualize how the crime would have went down. That made it a bit more terrifying for me. And I yeah, think that was really always, part of yep. the atmosphere of the story to me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's why I kind of gave it three and a half in that way. I was kind of going towards a four because of the atmospheric part of it, but yeah. I think three and a half is fair. Nice. Okay, well, let's finish up then with secondary characters or the supporting cast. And there's not much here. We got a narrator know, a who's a really just a mouthpiece. I went for two and a half just, just because I felt like you can't fail anybody. They service the story. And yes. the narrator gets gets Dupin to talk and it's responds the way Watson does in the early stories. It, it is just a pass, but there's nothing else here, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's nothing else here. We don't get enough detail of the gendarme. We don't of the, get anything. Of the prefect of no, no. Exactly. It's like you're reading some sort of text about a crime that was committed. You know, you're just reading the details. Well, you're yeah. catching up on Wikipedia or something on on, on the murder, right? So yeah. yeah. All right. So we're on the same page there, buddy. We got two and a half each. All right, well, you, my good man, are at a 17 out of 25 for Murders in the Rue Morgue, and I am at a 16, so there's not a lot in it here between the two of us. Not bad. All right, Kim. I'm curious to see see what what, what, what will rate the highest. I'm really curious to see how that's going to end up. Well, let's have a look then, Josh. Let's move on to our second story. We'll do some summation Mm. at the end of all of this, but this one's over to you, pal. You're going to talk to us a little bit about the mystery of Marie Roger. Marie 
Marie Roger, which is actually based off a real life case of Mary Rogers, who was who was found floating in the East River. Mm-hmm, yeah, and, and Poe, uh, while living in New York, would have he would have had access to this information. He would have been reading these stories, right? Yeah. So, so he basically trans. So what he did was he translated this to to Paris uh, for the purposes of the Tepin mystery, uh, and maybe in a way for him to kind of solve the mystery in his own way by breaking it down. So we kind of get his ratiocination of how he thought perhaps. Um, Mary Rogers met her fate in America, uh, just as Marie Roger met her fate in this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, to its credit, the mystery of Marie Roger is missing the tedious introduction of its predecessor as it thrusts us into the action of the story immediately. That is, of course, being the action of Dupin and his narrator slash friend principally reading the newspaper. In fact, more than one. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a young woman named Marie Roger has disappeared. Roger was a beautiful, flirtatious, ambitious, working-class young mademoiselle, uh, which Poe and others of the period define as a grisette. See, beautiful, ambitious, working-class woman. Sort of a mid-19th-century Parisian version of an Instagirl, or an influencer, or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. Marie Roger would have an Instagram, I guarantee it. And probably an oh, OnlyFans, maybe, she as would. well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let us say that the young woman was popular for her public work in the perfumery of Monsieur Leblanc, and all the boys were concerned when she disappeared. This was not the first time either. Only five months ago, she did not show up to work, but before serious inquiries could be made, she returned home ostensibly after a week of seeing relations in the country. In these circumstances, she had told her mother she would be visiting her aunt in the Rue de Drome, but after three days, the young woman did not return. A search was made, primarily by a Mr. St. Eustache, her intended, as well as a Monsieur Beauvais and others. It was Beauvais, amidst inquiries on the other side of the river from Mademoiselle's home district, that he learned the bloated body of a young woman had been found floating in the river off Barrier du Roule. Beauvais made the clear identification of the corpse as the missing woman Marie Roger. It is a narrator who describes these rudimentary details to the reader, of which then his friend, the Chevalier Auguste Dupin, becomes involved. The prefect G requires his assistance. The evidence is presented through the examination of various articles of the Parisian press, each of them having some take on the murder of this popular beauty. We're kind of in a way, I just realized we were regressing into this kind of journalism nowadays, like the journalism that we have of the late man. 19th, yep. 20th, and the <clears throat> mid 20th century, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, like real journalism. Mm-hmm. We're now back to this kind of like, we create our own narratives of how things could happen. And this is, we're back into the early days of journalism. It's, it's a very interesting um, modern take on things, I know, but it, I, I felt that when I was reading it here, like how the newspapers made their own theories of how the crime was, was solved while the police mm-hmm. were making their own theories. But, you know, back in the days of rationality, you know, less than 10 years ago even, the, the newspapers would, wouldn't be making these kind of theories. I mean, some of the tabloids would or something like that. But yeah, of course, yeah. It just goes shows how we're kind of regressing back into the original tabloid nature of newspapers in the first place. You know, yeah. before the big publishers got control and and what and whatnot in the in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. Yeah, celebrity profiling comes into things then as well. Yeah, it does sure. absolutely, absolutely. Um, so yeah, each of them have their own take on the murder of this popular beauty. Without much subtlety, mm-hmm. Poe has given us a treatise on confirmation bias in the media, as well as a crash course in forensic and detective fiction. To recite all the details of the investigation would be superfluous. I may just as well read the short yet somewhat interminable breakdown of the investigation composed in this short story aloud on this podcast. (laughs) 
because that's basically what I would do. And I think it would rob some of the heart of it if I went through every detail of the story, in my opinion. Suffice it to say. Mm -hmm. Poe examines the physical evidence presented by the prefect and the investigators, the surrounding facts and events of the case, as well as the conclusions made by publications such as the Etoile, Le Soleil, and Le Moniteur. I've noticed even in Paris, you know, versus Western world, we got the star, Etoile, we got Le Soleil, the sun, and Le Moniteur. Now, with the description <laughs> yeah. of Le Moniteur, yeah. we have the stars and we have the sun. Nothing's changed. <laughs> like, yeah. On yeah. the one the hand, monitor. there is... Yeah. The monitor, yeah, Le Monitor, is that like the mirror? I, I don't know, but... Uh, yeah, I guess so. National Enquirer, I don't know. Um, on the one hand, there is the preposition that the human remains found was not that of Marais Roger. On the other hand, there is what is described to as more than coincidental abduction of a young woman by a gang of blackguards around the same time that Marie disappeared near the site of her corpse's discovery in Barrière de Roule. Dupin trips down the arguments and evidence presented one by one, eviscerating them with facts and logic. There are many coincidences, the fact that, that her suitor, St. Eustache, commits suicide soon thereafter, mm-hmm. or that mm-hmm. Beauvais, who found her body, was in fact a suitor, or that Madame Roger had a premonition that she would never see her daughter again, or that the blackguards operated in the same area as she was found, or that nearby the site of the murder, a nearby thicket showing evidence of the, sh- of her, of the struggle where her petticoat was found alluding to the torn piece of it tied around her neck and holstered to the clip of her garter, or that during the previous disappearance of the young mademoiselle, she was seen with a sailor, a naval officer of dark complexion, whom she may have dallied with. Other evidence being the screams heard by Madame de Luc at dusk emanating from the riverbank. And what does this have to do with the boat found with its rudder mysteriously missing? Dupin discusses the evidence with her narrator piece by piece and disassembles it, all coming to the conclusion that it was a naval officer who did the deed. Job well done, Dupin, and as edifying as it was to see a criminal case broken down and the path of truth properly trod upon, (laughs) the successors of Dupin's creator would at least make it more exciting to the average reader. Yes, absolutely. And I think the cardboard box is a great example of how he does that, Josh. Doyle does that later. You know, we have a very similar type of story, which no doubt did take strokes and flakes from this one in developing its own storyline. But yeah, I think you got it bang on. Um, it, it's, it's edifying, that's for damn sure, but it doesn't make for great entertaining reading. I mean, and, and also we have, to, we have to acknowledge the fact that much of this story was borrowed. It wasn't created. It was borrowed uh, from real, true life. And so I, I suppose this is also like the first true crime story as well, isn't it? That's yeah, kind of been you could look at it that such, way. Now it's such, such a popular genre in and of itself right now. And you know, um, the reporting yeah. of the newspapers having their own different theories... It rem- and all the and I guess you can just picture even like writers writing into the newspapers and having their own theories and everyone around Paris talking about it the notoriety yeah. notoriety of the murder it reminds me a lot of uh, that young woman who, who that was killed by her husband who then killed himself like back in uh, in, in the states like uh, a couple of months ago do you, do you remember that that oh, I don't, young I, I don't woman know that who, who, who the young woman who disappeared on a hiking trip and her husband and her fiance came okay. back. And then he disappeared as well. And then the blame the parents for hiding the fact. I forget the case, but it was a uh-huh, huge uh-huh. true crime obsession and everyone had their opinion about it. Right, and that's okay. what it reminded me of that whole media controversy. But you could go right. to any kind of media circus, you know, in regard that in modern course, days yeah. that do occur when these kind of crimes are committed, right? Um, you, you know, you have like Paul Bernardo or you have O.J. Simpson or so on and Jean, so forth. Jean-Marie, what's her name? Jean? Oh, Jean-Benet Ramsey, yeah. That was never solved, if I'm not mistaken. No, no. But yeah, true crime. Yeah, that that is a good call. This is one of this is a true crime story in a way. But he's just changed. He just uh, up 
upended the location and, and changed it to Paris from New York. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I found Dupin, in terms of principles, I found him a little bit less here. I, I don't know if you mm-hmm. felt the same way. I, I don't know what you think, because I know you weren't... I think the narrator was, first, more prominent, was more prominent yeah, in the totally, story than yeah, Dupin yeah, was. Yeah. I mean, we get set up a lot more. Hmm. Yeah, we get Dupin's breakdown, but there's no characterization here. He's just breaking things down for us. Like, this is, to me, I'm reading Edgar Allan Poe's summation of what he thinks happened. That's, yes, in, in, absolutely. in a way, through yeah. Dupin is, again, a literary device. He is not a character. That's, that's, that's right, right. Yeah. 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 Deus Ex Dupania, I guess, is what we've Deus got going ex- on here. Something like that. Yeah. Now, I, I with you. Anyway, I, I went for a two and a half for Dupin here. What did you go I was for? a two. Yeah, that's right. So you you found him boring enough to fail. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, as a character, yeah, absolutely. I gave the investigation, just well, might as well start it off here. I gave it a three and a half. You know, I did like how the investigation was broken down. And I didn't, I did like, you know, the details and stuff and put it together myself. And I was following, unlike Sherlock Holmes stories where like you, Sherlock Holmes tells you everything at the end and how it figures out. We kind of get the Sherlock Holmes like given the big explanation at the end here within the context of the story that we're reading at the same time. Cause what we're doing is we're just, we're just reading it. So you have to look at it in that fashion is that this is how we're getting the investigation yeah. presented to us. Yeah. And so I was following each bit of evidence and I liked how uh, Poe described things like, for example, how a body, dr- uh, sink, a yeah, body. Floats. That's right. That was cool. Like, yep. Cause yep. your body sinks to the bottom. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it's only because of the gas or whatever afterwards where it kind of like it starts to release. Yeah, it releases. That's when the body surfaces again. Right. Yeah. So those kind of forensic aspects were really interesting. Um, that's just the details that Poe went into describing uh, the body and the whole thing. Just every detail was there for you to put put together. And so you could follow along pretty well. And that's why I gave the story a somewhat strong mark of three and a half. Cool. Okay. Well, I went for three and a half too. I like what he's done with the true crime thing. Um, it's creative stuff, you know, uh, even though it's borrowed. I wasn't yeah. bored reading this one. I, I, I wasn't, at least. I, I, I found that the, the details were, were nicely there for you, as you say, particularly those forensic things. But at the same time, like, it is just edifying. Like, it, it isn't... Yes. It. it it's not compelling. I don't find it compelling, mm-hmm. like, any more than an encyclopedia instructional sort of medical document would be you know if you have an interest in the macabre you can read about it here so find out what happens when a body falls into the water and is left find out what happens when you know an orangutan slits your throat like okay i I got some detail on these things but is it (laughs) it, i don't know i I just i don't know three and a half it feels a bit generous but i liked it like i was i was interested in this story even though i felt dupin was a little bit weaker you know yeah he went into a lot of detail about the black guards and, and whatnot. And I thought something, I thought something that's much a red worse herring, happened, right? That, that was a red her. herring. Yeah. Did you feel like it, it was of, a MacGuffin kind of, or no? No, it was a red herring. It was a red yeah, herring. Okay. I, I agree right. with you there. All but right. I did like how. And a bit showy, through, a bit showy as well. Like just a bit show offy, yeah. you know? I, I, I did. Yeah. I did like though, how Poe through Depen basically dismantled each argument of the newspapers and of the investigation to basically come to the conclusion <clears throat> yeah. of where he needed to go that the one that the one where no one was looking at you know mm-hmm. and i i did enjoy that summation especially especially how he disregards the blackguards and how they operate and how like there wouldn't i like the idea about how there wouldn't be such a struggle of the blackguards getting rid of the body or disposing it. You wouldn't have seen that struggle in the thicket or things, the fences being pulled out and you wouldn't see all the, the, you know, they wouldn't have to make the tear of the, of the, um, 
the, the tear of the uh, petticoat and tying yeah, it to her, yeah. to her garter Arter. and then to her neck Arter, and stuff, yeah. Drager and stuff like that. You wouldn't uh -huh. have any of those details. And how he described that was very, uh, very detailed, but at the same time edifying, yes, but also interesting in terms of uh, how when you separate yourself emotionally from the idea of murder and just look at it from a scientific level or forensic level, mm -hmm. how, he brought, how he broke that down was really interesting. It just goes to show how brilliant Poe was as a writer and I think as a mm -hmm. logistician in his own way. So do you think then that this operates well as a sequel? Like, do you see less of the, let me talk to you about ratiocination stuff and more of like a, a working story for that? that sort of treatise that we got in the first part. It just seems to me, oh, I solved the mystery of the room morgue. It was an orangutan. Ha! And then, oh, look, <laughs> oh, look at these newspaper clippings. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I figured it out. That's what happened. Like, that's basically it. Yeah. Like, okay. they happen, like, okay, almost right. one after the other. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> many, many do call this a sequel to the room morgue. I can see it as a sequel because they even mentioned the fact that it's just the Maroon War mm -hmm. happened, right? And then yeah. we, and then you get to the third book and they say, oh, well, the case of Marie Roger is there as well. And, and now <laughs> yeah. we're on to this case, the Purloin letter. So yeah. it's a link. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're getting there. Let's uh, let's just talk perpetrator. Let's talk uh, Sailor Man. <laughs> yeah. He's absent the whole way through. Absent. I gave it a two, but I mean, that's just because we have to grade him with something. I know it's, I shouldn't really detriment the story because of that, but story it made it less interesting to me you know i i didn't get yeah, it yeah. i didn't get a chance to know my perpetrators and find out what was going or on to their mind to make yep. my own decisions mm -hmm. or dislike them well yeah. okay i so, went for a two and a half simply because i thought as it serviced the investigation i liked it but no there's there's nothing there there's no color there's no dimension it. i passed it yeah because i'm still because I'm, I'm on good merit i'm on good credit from the investigation what about the environment here here is an area that i did find substantially weaker than in the room morgue i didn't yeah. get outside of the crime scene i didn't get a lot of flavor dude here how did you feel no yeah the flavor was very basic and described as if he was describing locations from like a map or from a uh, guide in yeah. the city like yeah. uh, i learned the names of different areas of paris i suppose along the along the uh, the seine but that's about it really um, mm -hmm. the, the thicket wasn't, was kind of an interesting, was, was to me, I gave it a pass. The thicket was really interesting though, to me, this little okay. thicket that yeah. has like these rocks in the stool, like some sort of like throne of some fairy king or something that just, I just kind of had that uh -huh. weird kind of, okay. I thought maybe Poe was cool. going into a different place with that, but, uh, and I thought something ritualistic was happening there. Like I thought that we, that's where I thought the story would turn interesting, but that wasn't the case. Cool. So, yeah. Uh, so you went for a pass. I went for a two on that one. And finally, we get the secondary characters. I guess you could build a case for the Black Guard being secondary characters. I, I don't know. What do you think? I'll pass it. Is that, I'll pass it. Two and a half. You'll pass it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I went, for, I went for a two with this as well. I, I just didn't get... I didn't get any development. There's no development of characters. There's no dialogue of other characters, really. It's no. all just reading, reading from statements reading from newspapers and i yes. get it that's part of the investigation so we don't see what poe can do with characters here in these stories so why should you disenfranchise the the, the category well i'm going back. to because there's you could have had a relationship yeah. with the prefecture you could have had someone in there that does something you could have had like saint eustache being a bit of a character mourning over his lost love and all this kind yeah, of stuff yeah, and showing yeah. more of his and later have like later and kind of show like in stages about you know his depression and then leading to his death and stuff and kind of making that into a red herring that could have been interesting yeah. but they never really played with that either they just you know they just wrote him off like that and <laughs> essentially totally 
Uh, yeah. Well, you've got a 12. You're 12 out of 25 for this one, buddy. Uh, so, so, you know, you like this five points less. And <laughs> I am at a, I'm at, what am I at? Six. And I'm at 12.5. So I'm a half point above you with this one. So there's really not much in this so far, pal. I mean, I don't know if, if our listeners are feeling, uh, if, if they are scoring these similarly or differently. If they're big Poe fans, they might be more credit to them. But I've, I've read a lot of Poe. And this this is the first time I've come to the Dupin stories. And I'm, you know, bah, so far, hmm. So there was a series called The Following. It was a Fox TV show called The Following. And it was mm-hmm. all about a cult based upon, who was a serial killer who based his work upon Edgar Allan Poe and how he developed a yep. whole cult around him. And James Purfoy, uh, he played this character. And Kevin Bacon was like everything. the guy. He's in everything. And the guy, he, and and uh, Kevin Bacon was like the FBI agent sent to hunt him down and stuff. And uh, yeah, so if you're any, if you're fans of Poe like that, yeah, please don't come at us. <laughs> nah, uh, for sure. Well, buddy, we've got one more story left before we talk summation on these. And that, of course, is the purloined letter, the third and final Auguste Dupin story. Now, this was published, buddy, in 1844, and it was carried in The Gift, which was a literary annual magazine. So, as we have seen, Sherlock Holmes does occasionally enjoy putting one over a saucy client, but he rarely lowers himself to work for or against an enemy. He burns bridges pretty satisfactorily. Dupin, however, takes on the investigation of the purloined letter both for personal financial gain and for revenge. Now, this tale of blackmail is revealed to us almost exclusively through conversation. If not Dupin's, then it's from the police prefect who comes to seek some advice. The narrator, or our otherwise Watson, chirps in occasionally, but only really to satisfy the here-and-there narrative functions of Poe's design. The Queen's boudoir has been accessed, and a letter from her lover stolen by a minister of some political office, a jealous would-be suitor, An Augustus Milverton type, maybe? Well, Minister D is holding the Queen's secrets ransom, and the police are fairly confident that the letter is nearby, but a search of his residence turns up nothing. Dupin asks the prefect some questions and then wishes him luck. Hmm. A month goes by, and the price of the letter's return has risen. The bounty for its safe return is enough that the prefect personally offers 50,000 francs for its return when he revisits Dupin. Dupin tells him to write the check and show me the money. Astonished, the prefect does, and Dupin then produces the letter. It is authentic, and the prefect gratefully rushes off to return the document to the queen. So what happened during the month, and how did Dupin accomplish what the police could not? Well, before he tells all, he first explains how bluff works and how eight-year-old kids are the best gamblers, according to one lengthy anecdote concerning a small fortune made by some or another tyke counting cards and the intelligent quotient of his peers. Tale told, Dupin finally gets round to showing his hand and explains that he visited the minister on a couple of occasions. Social calls, I guess you could say. Once wearing green glasses to hide his visual appetite for kicking about the place, and another to retrieve a snuff box that he deliberately left there during the first call. So you see, Dupin and the minister have a bit of a history. Some malodorous event transpired years ago in Venice. Dupin was only too happy to pull one over on this haughty politician. 
by an ephemeral series of cloak and dagger moves. He collects the letter under the pretense of returning for that snuff box, and there you have it. Bob's your uncle, or more fittingly, Dupin's your detective. Now, at the risk of showing my own cards here, buddy, I think that the trouble here in this story is that Dupin states from the very start where the letter is, and that denies the story any interesting plot or drama. I don't know how you feel about that, but, you know, we're told right at the beginning, this is the way it is, and then we're just waiting for the rest of it all to catch up. Conan Doyle does this a couple of times, but not not quite for the whole length of the story. No, not anyway, to this extent. It's not to this extent. Well, instead of discovering the truth and watching Dupin work, the rest of the story plays out like a conversation with the prefect, wherein Dupin espouses how correct he is and how miscalculating the police are. The drama then comes from our willingness as readers to listen to Dupin instruct the prefect on how to reinvestigate the case. It's truly an armchair tour through ratiocination, this one. Now, the most excitement I think anybody can generate from the plot comes from the stirring showcase of the schoolboy versus simpleton playing even than odds. <laughs> Dupin uses this as an example of how you can learn to outguess a weaker mind, and that is kind of interesting. And I think, Josh, this story works best as a showcasing of mind and of Poe's constructive skill as a writer. Few, including myself, would recommend it for its excitement. No. Curiously, I think it reads a bit like we might have imagined Sherlock's own folio writings, you know, whether on cigarette ash or blood types or any of the coterie subjects that he sometimes wrote pamphlets on. Entirely didactic and, while informative, not the best reading. Well, Dupin offers other analogies as well, such as the map game, where novice players make novice mistakes, missing what is obtrusively and palpably self-evident, that people are not as clever in their disguises as they would like to be, and that hiding something in plain sight is usually the best route to trickery. This story reads a lot like a more bloated version of the classic Holmes-Watson scene, where Watson guffaws his ignorance while Sherlock bears his rationalizing. The purloined letter ultimately then offers a blueprint for several plot tricks and treats that Conan Doyle would leaf through and pay homage to later within his own detective writing. And for this, we certainly have to respect the effort and the ingenuity. The difficulty is, for Poe at least, Doyle does it much better. <laughs> that is definitely true. Uh, but, not a but really, but more of like a an addendum to that. The type of story, sorry, the type of writing of the breakdown of a crime, the, the ratiocination, the deduction method, mm -hmm. all the prints, all of the me the methods that Sherlock Holmes uses in his uh, case solving, is exactly yep. is shown in this story and is shown in the previous story and in the in the first story, the murders in the Rue Morgue. It is my opinion, despite what Sherlock Holmes says about uh, Poe as a writer or about Dupin as a character, it's my opinion mm -hmm. that this is the kind of narrative or uh, reporting of his ventures that Sherlock Holmes wanted Watson to do in the first place. Because what makes ah, the Sherlock yeah, Holmes stories yeah. so exciting is how, and, and, and engaging is Watson's perspective and that how we are given different biases to cling on to and not, mm -hmm. and, and kind mm -hmm. of put our own point of view on things. But here, all we get is 100% fact. There is no black mm -hmm. or white or good or evil un unless Dupin says it's so, unless Poe says it's so. So I think this story, and in particular the previous two, are examples of the type of reporting that Sherlock Holmes was wanted Watson to do in the first place. 
That's a that's a really good observation, man. Yeah, I think you're right because Holmes is forever criticizing Watson for dramatizing and looking for the entertainment jugular, you know. And I, I think I think that's a good point. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it, if if Dupin and his unnamed narrator have any conversations where Dupin, after the third story, says, "You know what? I wish you'd make my stories a little bit more exciting." <laughs> Just to kind of flip the script a bit. Yeah, the narrator isn't kind of like awestruck with Dupin. Mm. It's almost like the narrator, this friend of Dupin's, is a friend, yes, but at the same time, he knows him very well. He's not taken aback mm-hmm. by his eccentricities. It's all, and he's and he's very quiet no, when he, he when shares he's absorbing them. the knowledge. And he's always on point in terms of uh, being on the same page as uh, Dupin, whereas he mm-hmm. is clearly kind of in his own way looking down upon the prefect and the police investigation at the newspaper articles like he's very observant in his own way so he has some of that acumen yeah, himself yeah. not as good as Dupin of course not as brilliant as Dupin but at the same time it seems like he's kind of just like the the silent supportive friend who doesn't get involved mm-hmm. with with or say are you sh- that's absolutely miraculous like we only get that one moment mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. in the in the room morgue wherein he determines what he's thinking when he's walking down the street or something like that, right? That's the only moment. Then after that, he's sold on him, and then you don't hear a peep out of him about Dupin's eccentricities, you know? There are no ejaculations, I think is what you're trying to say. (laughs) Yes, there are no ejaculations. (laughs) No, you're you're absolutely right, though. I mean, the, the stories are very void of emotion. And because of that, it's difficult for us to characterize the narrator particularly and how he feels it. Like, so as a foil as a foil to Dupin. It's just, it's just a non-starter. He doesn't act in that way. And we don't get to see any of Dupin's, you know, kind of colors or characteristics bounce off the narrator because he's really just a piece of wood, uh, a, v- a very scientific, objective story. I mean, and I think ultimately that's one of the reasons why, though I appreciate them, I can't really recommend these stories. There's just so much expository telling of information they're just not engaging. Like I, I would encourage, I would encourage academics and scholars and those students. interested in in the context of these of students. Yeah, of course, and those interested in the context of, of crime yeah. and its history and literature to, to go for these. But they're not pieces of writing that I'm going to return to. I don't think yeah. um, out outside of some sort of study context. You know, but I, I could be wrong. We'll see how it happens. But it's also sad in a way that this important figure was restricted to just three stories, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it might have been interesting to see had Poe wanted to, uh, had there been an appetite among his readers for him to do more with this character, what there might have been. But uh, we're, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves into the summation. Um, yeah, so The Purloined Letter is, is one of these stories of blackmail. Uh, not the first, certainly, and not the last, but within the world of detective fiction, perhaps it does offer us a blueprint for a Milverton-type character that we would see not just in Holmes, but in other stories and series as well. Yes. So what did you think, buddy? Uh, let, let's light our pipes over this one, the third and final of the Poe stories. Take me through your pipes, or your principal, at least. My principal? Well, uh... Take a guess what I gave the principal. I think, I think you probably gave the principal a two and a half. Mm, close. No, I gave the principal a two. Okay. I agree with okay. the, the assessment that you just made. Um, mm-hmm. I just don't get any character from, from this whatsoever. I will admit that there is a bit of more characterization of Dupin in this. We know that he's petulant. 
Um, mm-hmm. yeah. We learn that yeah. he's petulant in this, and we learn that he's a bit of an egomaniac a little bit. So there's colors of him coming out in this particular story. Um, so I appreciate mm-hmm. that, but it's still like it's still the same character to me from the first two stories beyond this extra bit of shadow and. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. two and a half would probably be a better view, but I'm going to stay with the two because I was still nonplussed by it all. So. Yeah, fair enough, man. Um, I I can't really disagree with you, but I, I, I went for a three. I went okay. for a three. And the reason I went for a three here is because, and again, this is credit. This is just giving credit to the potential of a backstory. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of fanboying this one a little bit, I think. That's Even right. though I'm not a we, great fan of we, Japan. We fanboy I, every now and then. I like enough of the vagueness and the, the sort of ambiguity about what happened in Vienna. You know, I, I would like to think, like, how did Dupin get out there? And, and who is this minister really to Dupin? And why is it that he wants to get involved in this? Like, we know in the first story, he wants to get involved because he had a relationship with or a friendship with Le Bon, and he thinks he has a way of, of keeping him safe. And we, we don't know any more than that. And we don't get any more than this either. But I would like to think that there's a backstory there that He's- could have been fleshed out. Yeah, he's world building here in this particular story more so. Well, actually, a little bit from book one to book three, he actually is sort of world building. Mm -hmm. Maybe he intended to continue on with his character afterwards, but he never got a chance to it. You Mm -hmm. know, being an alcoholic and dealing with uh, family members dying of the consumption and stuff like that, and his, you know, he had stuff on his mind, obviously. And mm-hmm. but maybe he intended to go somewhere more with Dupin. Perhaps that was his intention in the future. Maybe he wanted to do more afterwards, but we'll never know. <clears throat> well, I do like the fact that this is a bit of a spite involved Dupin. That this this is an interesting story because Dupin gets involved in it not because he's really motivated to solve it or return the Queen's, you know, sexy letters, but instead because he sees an opportunity to pull one over on this arrogant politician you know this guy who's holding people for ransom and i i like that i think i would have had more respect for him if it uh, if, if he wasn't holding royalty you know and these kind of patrician figures up but instead regular folk i think that would have been yeah a middle class person a little bit more or, noble yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do see what you mean but you can also say at the time that it was written especially in the political situation of france at that time which was like hopping in and out of revolution after revolution, you could say that he's being a bit of a patriot here. So you could kind of argue in that sense sure, that yeah. he is loyal to his country in his own way. But at the same time, mm-hmm. he also wants to get this person. So mm-hmm. the best mm-hmm. thing about that period was, get, was making her enemies pay for their past mistakes by yeah. making them walk towards their own political destruction. Because as he says, we're going. Um, we're, uh, he duplicated the letter so that uh, the minister would not, would not notice that it was missing. And so then the guy would That's continue, right. the minister would continue to do his um, v- very unfair entreaties to the queen, which would lead to his mm-hmm. political destruction when, in fact, they already have the letter. So they're waiting for him That's to implicate right. himself, right? So, uh, yeah, and I dare, say, I dare say that they would not be lenient to him either if this was the case. Like, this would be the downfall of yeah. not just of his career, but probably might lead to his execution or, some, or something of the mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Well, I said at the outset, buddy, that this story offers glimpses into what would later become the Naval Treaty, the Priory School, the Three Gables, the Second Stain. I think that this is a Scandal story that in, does reach into the canon in Bohemia. Oh, Scandal of Bohemia yeah. as well. Yeah, I, th- I think this one does stretch into the canon, maybe a little bit more than the other two that we've already read, you know. Yeah, this one like has some real political intrigue, yeah. So anyway, all of this is by the by. I went for a three because I think that there's a little bit more there 
uh, that could have been. But uh, but I also recognize that it, it it's playing a bit of credit. It's given mm. extra chips to Dupin and Poe, and maybe they weren't there on the table. But uh, you went for a two and a half. That's that's okay. Yeah, two and a half. It's kind of interesting because now we're getting into the investigation of the pipes, and this is I mm-hmm. gave this particular category a three um, for the what you have, for the reason that you have just suggested that we're getting something different. We're world building. We're mm-hmm. giving more mm-hmm. character mm-hmm. development here. We're giving more instances of his character. So, but it wasn't enough for me to kind of pump up the principal mark, but it was enough for me to kind of give this a fair kind of investigation mark of like a, of a three. Uh, the reason why I didn't give it like yeah. three and a half, because even though it was constructed, I liked how they talked about all the stuff the police did, about all the little details, about mm-hmm. tearing the house mm-hmm. up and the carpet up and looking inside like the the two, the two legs of the chairs for, for hidden receptacles yeah, yeah. and stuff like that, yeah. like all those little details and how he sort of hoodwinked the minister, particularly the whole Holmesian, the Holmesian trick of hiring mm-hmm. someone outside to do something to get things done, yeah. right? So. Yeah. Dupin has his own version of like the Baker Street Irregulars uh, kind of. <laughs> That's right, he does. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I I surprised myself with this one. Um, I agree with what you're saying. There's there's a little bit more interest here in the story. I I went for a four for the investigation mm-hmm. of this one because I thought it was better in its believability and in its implication and in its um, sorry in its suggestions. You know, its political intrigue as well as its personal. Uh, effect. I, I thought it was a little bit more interesting and believable than the other two. But please don't misunderstand. We, we've rated lots of better stories, fours and threes, than this one. But I think for what this character and what this story set offers us, this is the most interesting of the investigations. Because although Rue Morgue is, is probably the I might come down and say that's my favorite of the three. I think that in terms of the investigation and the structure of this one, I just felt it a little bit more relatable. It relied less on bizarre, um, you know, whodunit moments of revelation and deus ex dupania. Grounded procedural, sort of. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's a much better way of saying it. Plus, I like the fact that we're dealing with a blackmailer, someone who is real in the world, something that, although freak accidents with nature and animals can occur and although murders and boats from sailors can occur this is something that you know kind of reverberates with regular folk a lot more frequently i think than the other two and for that reason yeah it it might be a little less spectacle oriented and it might be a little less gratuitous in its uh, showcasing of violence or kind of the, these poe typical horrific gothic images and such but i think it's a little bit more frightening because of its banality you know and i i, I like that hmm good that's a good point at least uh you know it wasn't an orangutan that was blackmailing the cream <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now that yeah. would have been world building. Are they... <laughs> how how did the orangutan get back like how did he get back? He broke out of his out of, yeah let's work this one out how did the yeah. orangutan blackmail the queen? <laughs> Well, he worked, yeah, so he worked, I guess he escaped from the zoo somehow or wherever he was kept, because uh, it's, it's, it's assumed that the the animal wasn't destroyed, although I think he might have, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, He maybe he would have been. No, I, he wasn't, I, he, he was sold, he was yeah, sold. He was sold, so maybe somehow he got into the menagerie of like at Versailles or something, well, not Versailles, but wherever it was, uh, the Palais Royal, and maybe he, he got in there and uh, maybe... Yeah. He he purloined the letter from her from her study and stuff, or or maybe the uh, the, the minister uh, mm-hmm. 
took on, took on, heard about the Rue Morgue murder, heard about that, uh, what's his name, uh, Depen was involved, and wanted to get one mm-hmm. up on him, and then hired the orangutan to steal the letter. <laughs> but it backfired terribly. Okay. Yeah. I'll say it did. <laughs> okay, anyway, know. look, just to... Thank you for... Just uh, to restate. Let me yeah, sorry, walk on the sorry. scaffold there. <laughs> uh, just to underline my point, though, buddy, um, this is not a four, as we might have in the past rated Sherlock Holmes fours right. or a Raymond Chandler four. This is a specific and, and, and very uniquely to context four. This is, yes. I think, the most of, interesting of the ones. So within the world of the Poe-Dupin character arc, I'm, I'm going for. Very good. Tell me about your perpetrator. Tell me about what you thought here. What do you think of the minister? I passed him. Uh, yeah, I mean, me too. He, he, me too. He, two and a half. He fit the story. Um, there wasn't really mm-hmm. much. I wanted more details on him, like what his true ambitions were or some yeah, kind of idea. Totally. Like yeah. Dupin could have given us or his more. Name. Like, or his name. <laughs> well, Dupin could have given us more of his uh, background in Vienna and what, or sorry, in, was it Venice or Vienna? Yeah, totally. No, Vienna, yeah. Yeah, in Vienna, and what he could have done. Like, was this the proto-Moriarty? I was just curious to Mm -hmm. see, you know, if uh, there was more of a story behind him. I wish there was. So I passed him, but at the same time, I wanted more from him. And I wanted to see what he was planning to do, what his ambitions were. Like, how far can a guy go ambushing the queen before, like, the queen just basically just has that man just taken away. Like, the government would just act and to have that man just disappear. You know what I mean? Correct, uh, correct yeah. <laughs> even though like, the letter could could get out, they could easily deny it or, or dismiss it, mm-hmm. you know? There are ways to control information. And obviously, they weren't ready to go the extrajudicial methods yet. And so no. that's what Depend managed to prevent them from doing, was going to that route. But they would have, I guarantee it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Eventually, it would have come to that. But I agree with you, buddy. This is a blackmailer. Okay, but there's nothing really dynamic about him or his politics, even. Uh, we don't get a snidely whiplash angle to the character, nor do we get, like, a, a completely wooden character. He's just kind of yeah. like a meh, sort of, okay, he's a bad guy, but yeah, that's it. He, he's like, a, yeah, he's not even Machiavellian. There's just no angle to him at mm-hmm, all. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't nothing. know. It's just a... Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I went for a two and a half, and that's what you did as well, eh? Mm-hmm. A pass, cool. as we said. Right. What What about the environments? For me, this was the weakest category. I failed this. I went for a two because there was nothing really apart from the curtains and, you know, the little features of element there in the, in the, in the, uh, the furniture legs and such. There's nothing in here that would stand out or engage you. Yeah. This, this isn't a locked room mystery in quite the same way. Uh, no. I do, however, like if it was a gadget. I, I kind of like those green glasses, you know, echoes of echoes of uh, Pierce Brosnan's purple specks. In the world is not enough. Uh, <laughs> I think that yeah. uh, I think that's clever. But yeah, it's a gadgeting sort of detective. I guess that's his own little disguise, you know. I just think it's like, but well, nah. I, it's uh, I don't know. Maybe he just puts the sunglasses on so he can look at women and they can't tell. I don't know. Who knows why he wears the green sunglasses? Like I don't really. Yeah, I know. Like I don't really see the purpose of them. You know. I guess maybe it makes them look ob- <laughs> obsequious somehow. That's that's all I can think of. <laughs> well, people, I think people the were wearing sunglasses that, like, then. They were Vogue. So. Yeah, of course, of course. But he was wearing those tinted lenses so that his eyes could dart around the room when he was holding a conversation without the guy seeing yes. that his dar- eyes were darting. You know. And that goes to the direction of what I was saying about you know, so he can look at the yeah. women because they can't see him yeah. looking at him. So it, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. it. I was going back to what I was attending to what I meant to say, but I had to get there from another direction. I had mm. to follow the path of truth to it eventually. So there we go. 
Well, I went for a two there with uh, the environs and the purloined letter because there's n- none of the atmosphere of the original and really none of the externals of the secondary yeah, piece I'm, either um, of the Marie Roger piece. So I went for a two. What'd you do? I have nothing to combat against your two, but I, maybe it was just pure indifference or uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. blasé. I just gave it a two and a half. I passed okay. it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, finally, then, secondary characters supporting players. Uh, we've got absent clients, but obviously mm. important clients, you know, the the, 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 the royal house, the queen. Yeah. yeah. But they're absent. And the prefect, know, the narrator, maybe prefect is a little bit more involved here, I think, maybe. Mm, I passed it. <laughs> two and a half. You passed it, did you? Yeah. Well, I was kind of, I was kind of between a two and a two and a half, and I don't know if I want to extend the credit to the two and a half, but I don't know. These are really strange stories, aren't they? Because you get one, and the next one is almost identical, and the next one is almost identical in terms of how you rate these features. Like, but I guess that's, you know what? That's also that's also pretty cool that we're struggling with this because it suggests that we are up against and bouncing upon the progeny of, of this genre in a way in a, and yes the cate- exactly. categories haven't formed. cut themselves out yeah, yeah. E- exactly i'll go like, for it too I'll you can't apply two. our criteria very well to these stories because this is a genre that has just opened up that it needs to evolve yeah, yeah. and become what it became we have to uh, mm-hmm. look at it in the context mm-hmm. of the time we're looking more at theory more so than we are a text in that sense yeah yes you're right or um, ex- experimental and, uh, guess, theory or experimental writing yeah. So I guess for a certain extent, the, the scoring that we're applying to these stories is arbitrary in today's episode, but we're having fun doing it because it's kind of our shtick, isn't it? We gave it a go. We, we tried to make it work and, you know, yeah, we did. it, we did. it may not have worked for some people at home listening and that's perfectly fine. I appreciated the Edgar Allan Poe that I read here. It makes me want to read some other, other of his stuff, just a comparison, maybe some of some other mm-hmm. genres that he's done that he's a much more fulsome writer upon. And uh, I would yeah, definitely yeah. Would like to, uh, you know, investigate that myself. Well, I have read a lot of Poe, and I I can say that there's much better writing, in my opinion, there's much better writing out there within his his other works, like more of his kind of horror genres that things like, you know, The Pit and the Pendulum set your... House of Usher is great, but The Pit and the Pendulum is a a short one that comes to mind set during the uh, Spanish Inquisition. You've got The Premature Burial, The Black Cat, which is an awesome story. One of my favorites, The Black Cat, Mask of the Red Death with its um, Mm. kind of pestilence overtones and, um, you know, interesting Corman films, both uh, uh, The Mask of the Red Death and the fall of the house of usher poe's a great writer there's no two ways about it and i think that this is representative of his genius because he started something and he left it to go on and do other things and look what people like conan doyle picked up and did with it you know and i i think i've although the stories themselves won't resonate in my memory i don't think too much um i think this episode has been quite useful because it's it's enabled us to kind of get to that conversation you know yeah i I i think it was a good talk to have we went back to the roots of the genre that we've been perusing for the past two or three years, and we see the blueprint now yeah. more clearly. And we were actually showing mm-hmm. actually how successful we were approaching this because we are we are seeing that we did we were following those those uh, step by step. We were following that blueprint correctly. We could see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just couldn't mm-hmm. quite name it or we quantify it. And uh, this yeah. re- this reading of Poe has allowed us to do so. So I, I, mm-hmm. I'm happy about that. I think we gave Poe his due in this in this particular episode, and uh, we acknowledge him as the progenitor of the detective genre, of the science fiction genre, of the horror genre. Uh, definitely a 
turbulent and disturbed and imaginative individual. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's had, he, he left his legacy in the history of literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, for sure, man. And, you know, buddy, there are those out there who adore these stories, and that is just awesome. More power to you. I, however, am not one of them. Like, I appreciate them for their place within the genre, as you're saying, and I can most certainly, most certainly respect their ingenuity. But the fact remains that I find these difficult to recommend for casual readers, like I was saying before. Like, I, I would recommend them to academics and those looking for context of creation, but not for the average reader, because, you know, I... The language is too dense and bland, even for Poe, who does love a compound sentence. Like, I'm not saying that the regular reader couldn't read them, just that I don't think many would really like to. Not outside of being a, a fan of Poe, anyway. Like, the early genre pieces, or yeah. like, I think I think you'd have to peer through some scholarly prism to really enjoy them, <clears throat> or some historical um, rearview mirror, you know? I, I think kind of like in a night Shyamalan way, you could enjoy mm. Rue Morgue uh, just for that twist. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if I you put that right. into, into a series right. of short stories about crime, or and not just with Poe, but with other mm-hmm. art, with other writers, it would it would fit mm-hmm. it would fit well into there, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good shout. That is a good shout. And I, I I think really that Murders in the Rue Morgue survives as the most compelling of these three, even though I liked features of other ones uh, of uh, the Purloined Letter. I just think its otherness situates it as like a really far-reaching fantasy story that wears colonial costumery, you know, which is quite typical of the time. But it's really, it's it's really an interesting thing to stick under the microscope because you've got cultural, you've got xenophobia, like you were saying earlier. You've got this interesting natural history. Obviously, the 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 murder, the horrific crime itself, and yeah, it's uh, it's it's. I think it's probably going to hold up as my favorite of the three stories. Um, and certainly the scoring would suggest that. You and I both had uh, 13.5. No, sorry. You had a 13 and I was at 13.5 for the purloined letter. Uh, you were at 12 for Marie Roger. I was at 12 and a half. And we were both up in the 16s for the Rue Morgue. So I'm guessing that's the one that you're probably feeling strongest about as well. Yes. You know? But hey, man, these stories were intended for the average literary American of the 19th century as well. So I'm quite happy to be disagreed with for all of those previous comments. You know, like (laughs) I'm not living there now. I can't speak to how literary the average reader was who would pick up either The Gift or Graham's magazine. You know what I mean? I I can't really say for sure. So um, from my perspective, they're interesting little pieces, but they're not stories I'm going to go back and read with like great enthusiasm, you know, yeah. on their own, on their own. Other post stuff, yeah, for sure. And I'm pleased that we've done this. I am really pleased we've done it. And I think it fits too, you know, with our lighting the pipes. Like I, mm-hmm. like I, uh, I said at the start, and I guess, Josh, we can return by going back to the beginning, you know. This started as a Sherlock Holmes piece and this project as a Sherlock Holmes show. And we've branched out since then quite considerably. And we have a lot to thank Poe for, I suppose. Conan Doyle certainly did. Absolutely. We headed back to our, to, our, to the genre's origins and you know, reminded ourselves of, you know, of how far we've come since then. So it's a good feeling and uh, makes me excited for the next couple of episodes and what we're going to approach next. Mm-hmm. Why don't you say something to our listeners about that, buddy? What do we got coming up next on Lightning Pipes? Uh, we have coming up next Patricia Highsmith's The Talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah, I'm the story we've wanted to read. Yeah. To this because this is also one of my favorite films, and yeah, uh, by, it's a great by, movie by the late Anthony Minghella, who made like these three great films, and then he passed away, and then he, like he had mm, the I English know. Patient, the Talented Mr. Awesome. Ripley, yeah. 
and Cold Mountain, awesome. yeah. which is one of the best like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Southern perspective movies, films on the Civil War next to Gone with the Wind that you could get. And then he passed away mm-hmm. like tragically in the middle of a surgery. Uh, very uh, hellish, man. I know. Yeah. But I think he could have done much more and he could have done really interesting films. I think the closest filmmaker to him right now, if I were just speaking from my filmographic perspective, which I'm always in because mm-hmm. that's me, I would yeah. say the closest director to Mengele would probably be Villeneuve. Villeneuve is very close like to oh, Mengele's yeah. style. If you've seen movies like Prisoners mm-hmm. or, for example, The Arrival, uh, he's, he's all different genres, but he has he applies the same kind of style and look at people and and surroundings and vistas and how they connect psychologically to the characters. And I think he's really successful at cool. that. So if you haven't seen any of Miguel's work, check it out. I do recommend, though, uh, read Talented Mr. Ripley and yeah, watch sure. the movie the afterwards. Us, yeah. yeah, play the game. Yeah, yeah play it. Exactly. I'm- and we'll do the same thing, buddy. Uh, I'd be quite happy to do a a book review first, and then we can add one of our film reviews onto the series too. Yeah, that'd, that'd be, be fun. fun. Yeah, for sure. Let's do that. Let's get the talented Mr. Ripley done, because I'm sure that the Highsmith novel has lots of uh, little things that the, the film doesn't and vice versa, you know, so it'll be nice to do that. But yeah, I've never read the book. I've seen the film like you. I'm really excited to get into some High Smith. She's a fantastic top shelf uh, crime and mystery writer. So this will be fun to break the back of that one. Yeah, definitely. All, All right. right. Well, um, this has been a good episode. And thanks, everybody, for checking out Lighting the Pipes here as we went through the three Dupin stories of Edgar Allan Poe. Let us know your thoughts. As always, email us at uh, lightingpipes at gmail.com or find us on Instagram. And thanks very much for, for checking us out. And we'll, yeah. uh, we'll see you back here soon. Absolutely. And remember, if this has uh, triggered your love for Sherlock Holmes, go back to our first season. Where, wherever mm-hmm. fine podcasts are found, look up Lighting the Pipes. Our first season is all Sherlock Holmes. Um, we even done a, some retrospectives recently, but check that out if you haven't yet, if you're just joining us now, and uh, join the adventure. <laughs> all right, buddy. Take care of yourself. We'll see you back here soon. Later.